Hype Beast and Hype Radio, I am Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype, a show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. It is very hard to encapsulate our guest this week. I feel like he's lived multiple lives, and in fact, he is still now creating even more chapters. You know, the word legend gets thrown around a lot these days. But for this man, the word doesn't do enough. I mean, let's try. He's a creative mastermind, a connector of art, an innovative studio owner, an advertising titan, an advocate of the unknown artist, but at the same time, a confidant of the billionaire executive. And once you feel like you got the right description for him, he'll surprise you with a brand new endeavor that he's embarking on. I'm proud to call this man a friend, a mentor, and an inspiration. And not just for me, but for many others as well. That's the amazing part. He's not only the bridge, but he's also a bridge builder, constantly connecting different worlds. John Jay is the former executive creative director of the legendary advertising agency, Wyden & Kennedy. And he's now currently the president of Global Creative at Fast Retailing, which you might know as Uniqlo. And to be honest, an entire podcast network could probably be dedicated to his stories and his learnings. So we're probably going to need two episodes to get through all of this. In this first part, we break down John's early inspirations and childhood experiences and career choices that will shape who he is today. So let's get into it because we have a lot of ground to cover. Business of Hype. John Jay, episode one. Let's go. My name is John Jay. I'm president of Global Creative for Fast Retailing, which is the owner of many brands, but including uh, Uniqlo, J Brand, Theory, Helmet Lang, Comtois, De Contenir, and Princess Tam Tam, the last two in Paris. Mm. Okay, that's big. But I spend most of my time on Uniqlo at this point. Mm-hmm. Clearly, it, it is the 900-pound gorilla in the room <laughs> and with uh, uh, tremendous opportunities and and uh, things to solve. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, I'm here in Japan, but I live in three cities. Okay. I, I live and work in three cities. I, I live in Tokyo, Portland, and New York. Mm-hmm. And so I spend time between those three and then, of course, travel to others, other countries, other societies, other cultures, other yeah. places uh, around the world. What's a, what's a month look like for you? Like 30 days? It's pretty crazy. But to, like explain how you break down these, these well, time zones. Well, I do have to spend minimum seven days uh, in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. That's my commitment. Seven, seven days to 10 days, always. And that usually has to stretch out to t- two weeks, you know. So, and uh, I've been spending more time in New York, my, I consider my hometown in many ways, um, and, uh, I'm committed to some major things in New York this year, and I just have to spend time there. I've opened what we call global creative labs, uh, in the last, uh, two years. I thought it would be, the first one would be, well, the first one was in Portland, Oregon, and I was going to build, a uh, an office there of some size. And, uh, it turned out that, uh, I've, invested that time and effort into New York. So we have a new office, a creative lab in uh, in the meatpacking district on Gansworth, and now in Tokyo and in Shanghai. 
in Portland is still there, but uh, uh, I'm still in the midst of building that. So we have these creative labs that are opening around the world that are helping me to connect to the cities, the cultures there, but also we're beginning to make work, creative work out of those, out of those labs. Mm -hmm. Okay. And previously, um, your last role was at where? I was for many years, um, partner and uh, executive creative director of Widen and Kennedy. Mm -hmm. um, spent my last, uh, I don't know how many years with Dan Widen, the founder, as the global creative lead uh, over the entire network. Um, and I had spent uh, six years in Tokyo opening Asia, living in Tokyo, opening Widen Kennedy Tokyo, then Shanghai, then New Delhi. And then Dan asked me to come back to help run the network with him. Mm -hmm. How many years were you at Widen all told? 21. 21 years. And how many years have you been at Fast Retailing now? I'm uh, trying to think now. I think three. Okay. So a short time. All right. And then before Widen, did you have, was there like a, a home that you had in a career or were you like sort of jumping around? No, no. I had a big home called Bloomingdale's. Okay. <laughs> back in the days when that was a... One of the driving cultural forces, quite frankly, yeah. in New York City. And it's hard to say that now because even kids at FIT wouldn't understand what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. People would say, uh, isn't that a department store? Yeah. Isn't that the, the synonymous with dinosaur? Right. You know? But it's hard to hard to explain to people what a force that was back then. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, so like I, not just a retail business force, but a cultural, cultural influential force. force. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my favorite quotes... Uh, um, I was doing a double-page ad in the New York Times. That itself will tell you uh, <laughs> how, how old this how is. This is. <laughs> I was the largest advertiser in the New York Times. I did what I called triple trucks. Uh, triple trucks meaning three consecutive pages in the center of the first section of the New York Times, and that once in a while would grow into quadruple pages, four consecutive. Mm -hmm. But not only that, sorry to get into this detail, but it just it, it just is a sign of the times. Uh, I owned page five, the very first uh, advertising page in the first section on the right-hand page, which was the premier. I owned the space of the double-page uh, double spread in the middle, mm -hmm. the back page, and the inside left and right before the back page. <laughs> so I could create all these stories. And yeah. So I would create these narratives, these fashion narratives, design narratives, uh, cultural narratives that would be displayed in, in the paper. And once I, w I went to Andy... Warhol and asked him, I said, we're going to do something about Bloomingdale's place in America, and the promotion is going to be called America. And the quote was, uh, Bloomingdale's is the museum of the 80s. Um, and that's what it was like back mm. then. And uh, my first trip to Japan was for Bloomingdale's. Um, and uh, I spent time here interviewing designers, fashion designers, graphic designers, filmmakers, and they gave me space in the store to give... Uh, a cultural exhibition of what was happening in contemporary art and contemporary mm -hmm. communications back then. So, it's you know it's it's hard it's it's hard even well even in this interview it'd be difficult for me to even express to you the kind of work that we did. I mean documentaries yeah. that I produce all over the world. Wow! Uh, exhibitions with graphic designers, shopping bags for ten years that had no name on them, mm -hmm. no logo constantly surprising by having a different artist or illustrator or photographer each time so that I so that I could set you leaning to the left. Oh, the Blue Windows bags are going to be about painting and illustration, and then the next one would be a photographer, and the mm -hmm. next one would be a graphic designer, and never have our name on it. Wow. Never have our name on it. 
Not never put even the on the bottom. Wheels. No, not even on the bottom where it says Equitable <laughs> Printing Company. I yeah. didn't even put it there. <laughs> wow. What was your title at Bloomingdale's? I was uh, a variety of titles. I was Senior Vice President, Creative Director, and then uh, the my mentor, and I know you want to talk about mentors later, uh, tremendous, tremendous leader, uh, Mr. Marvin Traub, who was a legendary CEO um, that made Bloomingdale so great. Um, he used to always hang this carrot in front of me of saying, well, you could be the marketing director. And I said, I don't want to be the marketing director. <laughs> I just want to be the creative director, you yeah. know? But eventually, uh, the enterprise, the store got in trouble because of a leverage buyout of the parent company, Federated Department Stores. Mm -hmm. And back in the days, in those go-go years, when all these buyouts were happening, it brought Bloomingdale's down. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he needed... He needed to meet to, to be the the marketing director, so because my boss moved over to head over head up another division, so out of loyalty to him, I, I took it. But boy, it was painful because as the illustrators and the artists and people were, were bringing their work in to show the comps and everything, they're walking right by my door. I see them walk by my door. Normally, you turn left and come in my door, and, yeah. and they were going to another person's office, and uh -huh. that, that was painful. Yeah, yeah. How about leading in? How did you get into Bloomingdale's? Well, that's an amazing uh, <laughs> coincidence. Um, I I, my first part of my career in New York was in journalism. Okay. I, I love I that part of it and working with editors. And they were not um, style magazine. Mm -hmm. They were not fashion. They were not lifestyle at all, design at all. Uh, first, I started in, so, in social commentary on, uh, on, on everything about... Uh, uh, what's what was challenging in our society? Uh, those were uh, newsletters and newspapers that I started. Then I graduated to magazines, but never even at, well at that at point uh, magazines that were called controlled circulation, which meant were not for sale, but were funded by advertising uh, in the magazines. Uh -huh. Four of them: MBA for business, medical dimensions for doctors, uh, juris doctor for lawyers and new engineer for science and engineering. That was my background, Okay. that kind of editorial. And you were writing articles and stories. I was. I became the art director and creative director oh, okay. over all of that. Um, so I was a, an editorial art director and then creative director, all of that. But what journalism aspect was there then? Or well, you got your foot in the door with journalism? Yeah, in the, in a sense, but uh, soon it was all visual. Okay. So, that, so I was sitting, I was sitting in... Um, my editorial offices, and um, a new intern came in from the New York Post. Mm -hmm. So these magazines I mentioned, this is a, a bit of um, trivia that almost no one will remember or know. They were the first, one of the first, maybe the second acquisition of Rupert Murdoch. New York Post? New York Post was first. Okay. Well, actually, there was in San Antonio, but New York Post was first in New York, and then MBA Communications, which was the company I was with, the creative director of, he took over MBA Communications. Okay. So my relationship with him, uh, the way back when, uh, was when he was just entering in America and making his imprint at that time. Mm -hmm. In fact, I was in the elevator with his lawyers, of course, typical me, going back to the office to work late at night. It was like 10 o'clock at night, and he was just coming back from a signing of, of buying the New York Post at that time. And so fast forward, here's a little story. So now he makes a play for New York Magazine. Mm -hmm. 
Now, New York Magazine is my hero. Yeah. I mean, Milton Glaser and mm -hmm. everyone, the greatest journalist of, of American history of that time. So he's making a play for it. And James Brady, the former editor at uh, Harper's Bazaar, is my boss at NBA Communications, says, Rupert called and said, there's a threat of a walkout at New York Magazine come Monday morning when the handover happens, mm -hmm. that when he shows up, the entire staff's going to walk out. Wow. So he said he wants us to help and be ready. So we worked over the weekend creating uh, articles, and I designed a, a couple comps with a cover and everything just to be ready yeah. in case of a the plan B. Yeah. Plan B. Um, so it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen. Um, and, but he was very appreciative. And a year later, two years later, there were these uh, two hot young editors who took over New York Magazine as a team, mm -hmm. which was unusual. I always dreamed of working at New York Magazine because it was just, you know, the, the high point of editorial design at yeah. that time, you yeah. know. Walter Bernard, who was the, the legendary art director that, that actually made the magazine under uh, Milton. Um, so I'm sitting in the lobby with my receptionary with my little portfolio. In comes Rupert, mm -hmm. and he sees me, and he says, John, what are you doing here? Uh -huh. He says, well, I have an interview here. He goes, oh, you don't have to wait here. Come with me. <laughs> so I come in with him, mm -hmm. and I walk down that aisle with all the editorial staff on each side, and it was like a parting of the Red Sea, but uh -huh. it was death. Rupert walking you in. Yeah, it's yeah. absolute death for me, because now there's no way I'm going to get this job. <laughs> <laughs> so... I don't. Uh, I did not get the job, uh -huh. so I don't know whether uh, it could be a combination of who I knew and maybe just my work just wasn't good enough. You know? Yeah. So sometimes it's not good to know the top boss. Oh, um, yes, yes. <laughs> we don't want like. So you don't know me. So. Yeah. <laughs> no. But yeah, I know that you know they're like we don't want like teachers pet in here all the time, right? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that uh, that editorial background was so important to me, and so we get an intern from the New York Post. And his name is James Troud, mm -hmm. uh, fresh out of Harvard. And through conversations, I make the connection that his father is Marvin Troud, the famous chairman of Bloomingdale's. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm on this side of the fence looking over there, and the grass, of course, always looks greener. Yeah. And I'm seeing work that's being done already by this store. That's, it's already famous. Mm -hmm. And the extraordinary times, you know, and, uh, you know, they were working with people like Guy Bourdain and extraordinary people already. And, um, but Jim Traub was very sensitive about the connection to his father. He wanted to be his own man. Gotcha. He wanted to be a real journalist. Mm -hmm. He had no interest in fashion, you know, retailing yeah. and all that. He's, he's going to do it his way. So out of respect, I never, ever asked him about Bloomingdale's. Mm -hmm. And after a year or so, uh, his last day, I remember this <laughs> so clearly, summer day, he packs up his box with pencils and books and everything, and we walk up together up 3rd Avenue. So we're walking from 46th Street up to, and as soon as we get to 59th Street, I'm in front of the windows of Bloomingdale's, and I get the nerve yeah. to raise the question. <laughs> Jim, I understand your father is Marvin Traub. May I, do you know who does their creative? Who does their advertising? Do they use outside people? Do they have an internal agency? What, what, how do they do it? And he says, well, let me connect you with their senior VP of marketing. Uh, they do most of the work internally. I said, oh, okay. And he says, I, and let me mention this to my father. Nice. I get home. I sit down. In 10 minutes, there's a phone call. Um, we'd like you to come to the store, introduce yourself, and so forth. 
Now, mind you, my portfolio has absolute no relevance to what Bloomingdale's right. business is. I come from business, science, mm -hmm. law, and medicine. Medical, yeah. Yeah. However, I have to say, backtrack a little bit. The thing about that experience is it made me think conceptually because a lot of the articles were about advances in business or science, and they're not easy visual things mm -hmm. that you can just pick up. Yeah. So they're very conceptual. And so that made you really, really work hard and think about conceptual ideas. Mm -hmm. So I have no portfolio that is relevant to these people. And if I go in with, even if it was the greatest portfolio in journalism anyway, uh, it's it takes a lot for someone to be able to see Oh, I see. You do this, and that could apply to me. Yeah, that takes a very, very strong visual person mm -hmm. that has experience and so forth. So um, I I pushed the meeting back. Mm -hmm. um, they said, "Oh, uh, Mr. Traub is leaving from Milan at seven in the morning. Can you come by?" And I said, "Actually, you know, uh, let me just wait for him to come back. I I wanted more time." Yeah. So what I did within the week, I created a completely new portfolio just for that interview, for mm -hmm. that. It wasn't even, it's just a meeting. Yeah, but just in case you wanted to have stuff to show. Yes, yeah. exactly. So I did a whole portfolio based on light, on how light can change beauty and how light affects uh, the a way a woman looks and how clothes look. And I went to photographers that I knew, really conceptual photographers that I were working with, and asked them for photographs that had to do with light and had people in them. Mm -hmm. So I borrowed those photographs. I actually shot some pictures as well and comped up uh, uh, everything from books to catalogs that what I thought could be an ad yeah. and put together an entirely new portfolio just to have that. And then if they say, uh, but these aren't real, uh -huh. uh, I can show them my regular portfolio of, right. of journalism. Did you comp it up with Bloomingdale's? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. wow. Everything. Oh, That's yeah. a risky maneuver. Well, some brands are like, what are you doing? Like making up ads for us. Like we're, you know, yeah. it's, you know, some yeah. people could see it as an insult. Yeah. I yeah. could. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you roll the dice, yeah, you know, totally. it's, it's, you know, I wasn't going to put Macy's on them. <laughs> right. So right. How did that meeting go? It, uh, first the senior VP Gordon Cook, uh, uh, who was a mentor also in my life. Uh, he takes me, he says, well, I think Marvin should see you. Mm -hmm. And so I meet with Marvin and we sit down and he has, um, president there and, he said, very interesting. Um, how would you like to work here? Mm -hmm. And then I'm like stunned. And I'm so stunned. I said, uh, but Mr. Trout, but I have no experience. I have no fashion experience, no retail experience, no advertising experience. And, and you, you, you know, and I said, are you sure? And he, I'll never forget this. He looked at uh, the president and, and said, Jim, are we sure? He says, we're sure. And then he looked at me square in the eye and says, but are you sure? Yikes. And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, wow. So, story. Yeah, and so uh, it was an extraordinary. So this man and this company was my graduate school of culture and design. He took me around the world, introduced me to everyone, Jean-Paul Gaultier, uh, everyone, everyone mm -hmm. went to Paris. My first trip to Tokyo was with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, extraordinary you experience. You mentioned Andy Warhol. That's crazy. Uh, all those people. All those people. It was just extraordinary time. It's it's hard for me to even talk. You just have to lay it out in pictures and show mm -hmm. what we did because even students at FIT today would have no idea what we did. Mm -hmm. It was just extraordinary. Yeah.
One of the things I truly believe in is taking calculated risks. Calculated is the key word here because random risks are just stupid and will probably get you nowhere quickly. John knew that Jim, the son of Martin Traub, was a way into the job of his dreams. He waited over a year for the right opportunity. Patience, willpower, and ever observant. And as Jim's last day approached those final moments, this was John's last chance to ask. He finally summoned the courage, popped the question, and got the answer he was looking for. Now, could he have asked earlier? Sure. Would he have gotten the same exact answer? Quite possibly not. He had to read the room and his surroundings, and his radar and instinct told him this was it. This was the moment. Timing is everything. If you're listening to the show, you probably already know that you can't expect to sit around and hope for opportunities to fall into your lap. There's a difference between keeping your fingers crossed and being strategic about it. It's not just about taking action. It's about knowing when to do it. There's another takeaway from this section. At this point, John's already got a great career, but this whole new opportunity would thrust him into new and unconventional scenarios. How do you go from medical and law journals to fashion and retail at the pinnacle world stage? First, it starts by saying yes, even when you know deep down you might be thinking, what the hell do I know? But John knew he was good, and he knew he would learn fast. So when the person controlling the room looks you dead in the eye and asks, but are you ready? You better have your answer locked and loaded. How about leading up to, um, you mentioned this was your, your graduate degree. Where did you go to college? Ohio State University. The Ohio State <laughs> University. <laughs> the Buckeyes. <laughs> and what did you study? I studied visual communications, which is a fancy term for graphic design. Mm -hmm. uh, we were the uh, lesser cool students uh, because in the program of industrial design, the 3D people, the product people. Yes, product were, designers were, were, were the product, cool. Were the yeah. cool ones. They know? had the exacto knives and yeah, stuff, yeah. And, and <laughs> we were making moccasins and belts with beaded things. But in, in actuality, Ohio State, that program was one of the leading programs uh, at that time, just started. Uh, and uh, all the teachers were either English, German, Swiss. Okay. Uh, it's extraordinary. So mostly from Europe. All from Europe. Uh -huh. So you have to remember now, uh, I'm coming from a Chinese laundry at that time. <laughs> Explain this. What do you mean? I grew up in the <laughs> Chinese laundry. So I never lived in the house until I was 15. Mm -hmm. My, and I, this is almost a cliche. I say this all the time. My dream at that time was to have a sofa. Right. So your parents were immigrants from, immigrants. from southern China. They my, ended up in Ohio. My father came when he was 12 by himself. Classic story. Mm -hmm. By himself. Actually, and this is something that uh, uh, I need to do a lot more digging, and I hope it's not too late. He actually grew up in Lima, Peru. And, and the <laughs> Chinese are sojourners. They go where there's work. Yes. Uh, Humberto Leon of, of, uh, of Kenzo, mm -hmm. he's Chinese. His family is from Peru, and they go there every year. And I'm, I'm dying to go with him one day to see yeah. if I could excavate some something, you know, <laughs> ideas. Yeah. But his brothers died of some illness, okay. and so the parents got scared and sent him to China. Mm -hmm. He goes to China. He doesn't even speak Chinese at mm -hmm. that time. And he spends some time there, and then finally he comes by himself to America, I think maybe 13, 12 
and ends up in Columbus, Ohio, because we had a quote-unquote relative. And it's not truly a blood relative, but someone who's from the same village is considered yes. your uncle. Yeah, uncle. Your uncle, uncle, auntie. Yeah, Right. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes to this uncle, and this uncle owned a Chinese laundry mm-hmm. called the Charles Wing, C-H-A-S, period, W-I-N-G, laundry, hand laundry. So my parents ended up immigrating to America uh, after World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad fought in World War II. And... Um, met my wife and trying to use that money that he saved up, the GI money that he saved up during the war, came to America uh, and and worked at the laundry uh, for nothing, for peanuts, mm-hmm. you know, just to have shelter. Yeah. And as uh, this old man st- uh, thought about retiring, they paid something for the laundry and took it over. And shortly after, I was born. Mm-hmm. So I grew up in the laundry. Right. Uh, in the room that used to be the room that where you would hang all the clothes to let it dry. Um, right. It's uh, and and this because the laundry at that time didn't even have a a a, a dryer. Mm-hmm. Everything was hung dry. Yeah. Um. So I grew up there, and so it literally wasn't until I was a junior in uh, end of sophomore year of of high school that I actually stepped foot and lived in a house. Wow, that must have made growing up in high school very awkward or embarrassing. Yeah. In junior high, yeah, I had one friend that you know, kind of my closest friend. Well, that's time. Well, in a more elementary school, I think, uh, living at the laundry, I never had anyone over. Mm-hmm, you know, of course. And I could never have anyone over. Yeah, and um, I decided to ask my friend Robert to come over when one day, and this is tiny room. And it's like the size of this living room here that, that my parents lived in and I lived in. So, and there was a partition that was their their part of the the room. And um, I wanted something to make it feel special. This is my first time a friend, a Western friend from outside is coming to visit me. Mm-hmm. So there's a big fence in the back, um, and on the other side is a bar. And the weekend before, there was a country Western band that played, and they had a gigantic hand-painted vinyl sign mm-hmm. that they threw in the trash. I jumped over the fence in the trash, pulled out the sign, brought it home, hung it in this room in uh-huh. the laundry because it was the closest thing I had to art. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you, how was the how was it when the friend came over? He said, "Oh, this is nice." <laughs> yeah. And they lived in homes, right? These people like live your friends all live in like houses. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they they weren't none of them were uh rich or anything, but mm-hmm. clearly, you know, middle class, you know, yeah, yeah. you know, and so forth, you know. Right. So um I wow. you know, now I'm hobnobbing with all these different artists all over the world and so forth. But yeah. my first experience was hanging a country western band hand painted sign on vinyl out of the garbage that I picked up and hung on the wall because I just wanted some kind of decoration. Yeah. I bet you wish you had that piece now though. <laughs> I do actually. <laughs> you actually do? No, no. I wish I did. Oh yeah, yeah. I that'd be amazing. I, <laughs> I wish I did. So, um, what did your parents think about like the career choices that you were trying to make with graphic design? I'm very, very lucky because they supported me. I'm the first to go to college. Mm-hmm. They just want me to finish. Yeah. They just want me to go through college. So when I talked about graphic design, they had no idea what right. I, what I meant. And in fact, it was derided by some of their friends, their Chinese friends, immigrants who knew nothing about like yeah. this. 
And of course, it didn't sound like doctor. Right. Didn't have that same ring as lawyer or engineer. What is this thing? And so uh, one man in particular uh, was trying to say something, put a little knife in the family, you know, Mm -hmm. he says, oh, uh, your son John is going to school. What's he studying? And my mother has no idea what it is, but she says graphic design, Mm -hmm. because that's what I say at home. He said, really? He doesn't need to go to college for that. And so the way he was describing it, don't they make the little thing ads in the yellow pages in the phone book? Mm -hmm. You know, Little square ads, yeah. You don't need to go to college for that. Oh boy! So then my mom gets all upset. You know? <laughs> like, <laughs> right? What are you wasting our time? Yeah, what are you doing? <laughs> oh man! Why? Why do you think you were enamored by graphic design? I actually wasn't. Oh, uh, okay. I, I, <laughs> why'd you pick it then? I said to my friend, uh, "Dude, I need an easy five-hour course for this quarter." Uh-huh. And he said, "I'm in this thing called graphic design. Why don't wow. you come with me?" But the truth is, I've always interested in art. Mm-hmm. In the days of the laundry, uh, my mom would tell me, and I remember this, I would draw on the walls mm-hmm. and everything. And uh, in kindergarten, I would paint uh, always buildings, skyscrapers with jets flying on top. Mm-hmm. And, uh, because there was one tall building in Columbus called the Lincoln Levesque Tower, and I would always draw that with an airplane in the air. And then I went to, um, I went to a Saturday afternoon uh, art class, mm-hmm. and that really turned me on uh, at the Columbus Museum of Art. So that really opened up the world. But the the thing was, nice hobby, nice thing, nice. It's a fun thing to have. Uh, yeah, it's nice to you know have these skills. But when you get serious and you have to make a living, this ain't gonna be it. Right, right. So you had some sort of artistic Definitely. seed in you. Was yeah. it from your parents? Were they absolutely artistic? not? They have no idea where it came from. <laughs> That's awesome. Despite having a legacy that most of us would wish to just have a slice of, John continues to be the same humble, down-to-earth guy I first met a decade ago. And there's a reason for this. He never forgot where he came from. The people you meet going up might be the same people you meet coming down. Yes, you need to build a technical foundation that grows your talent and craft, but don't ever forget the traditional and foundational roots that gives you the perspective of what you have now. The similarities between my life and John's are freaking uncanny. In fact, if you want to have a life similar to ours, it could very well be the secret recipe. So, offspring of immigrant parents, grow up in a neighborhood with very little representation of people that look like you. Grow up in the shadows of your parents' grueling jobs. For John, it was a Chinese laundromat, and for me, My parents worked in a Chinese grocery warehouse. You should have an interest in art, but not really aspire to be a true artist. And take graphic design. And have your entire family shit on it. Mix in some journalism, and voila, you have John Jay, and you have my life. Now, maybe it's this underdog mentality that fuels both of us today. You have to grind and grind just to get a look and an equal opportunity. I think Jay-Z said this best in his song, Legacy. That's called the Red Queen's race. You run this hard just to stay in place. Keep up the pace, baby, keep up the pace. You run this hard just to stay in place. You run this hard just to stay in place. What's the reason behind why you do what you do? 
always have that crystal clear in your mind. Why? Why do we wake up? Why do we navigate? Why do we motivate ourselves? The answer to that, my friends, is the purpose of life. Okay, so we got your uh, college days. Um, yeah. We got Bloomingdale's. All right. How do you now jump from Bloomingdale's to freaking widening Kennedy? Once again, no, I never worked at an agency, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Never worked on sports, mm -hmm. right? And yet I go to Portland, Oregon to become a creative director on Nike. Yeah. You know, in fact, the first day at work, Dan comes into my office, Dan Wyden comes into my office and said, you know, John, I forgot to ask you this. Do you know anything about sports? <laughs> I said, Dan, too late. Yeah. <laughs> but read my lips. Ohio State. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so I was obvious. I'm a huge football, basketball, you know, fan mm -hmm. and followed the game. And, I mean, I used to go to all the spring games uh -huh. back in the days where there'd be like 30, 40 people in, in Ohio Stadium. Oh, wow. Okay. So how do you get, so how did this relationship happen? To Wyden and Kennedy. Yeah. Well, Working at Bloomingdale's, you have to remember, I'm a son of immigrants. Mm -hmm. So that underdog mentality is forever with me. Yeah. Even today, mm -hmm. strongly. Mm -hmm. And I think you can relate to that. Definitely, always. So I'm in Bloomingdale's. Now, Bloomingdale's is super famous. Mm -hmm. And uh, very. And I built probably one of the most interesting and coveted creative departments mm -hmm. in the country. Yeah. But on the pecking order, we were still at the bottom of the ladder. Oh, yeah? Bloomingdale's was? In-house. Uh-huh. Oh, in-house. In yeah. Creative department. Right. At a department store, for mm -hmm. the most part. Okay, Bloomingdale's is different. Yeah. It's true. So the agency world of Madison Avenue was the glamour at mm -hmm. that time, was mm -hmm. the power, you know, in terms of creativity, the yeah. big budgets and everything. And um, so I always felt, well... I can play with these guys, I mm -hmm. think. I'd like to, you know, compete. And, yeah. and, and we, you know, in terms of awards and that kind of stuff from a, a design standpoint, we, you know, we were on par mm -hmm. equally. But socially, the, yeah. the, 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 the feeling is, you know, you're an in-house person. You can't be all that good uh -huh. you know, and so forth. Um, and so I started introducing to my staff uh, key creative people from the agency world. Okay. And the fact that they would accept my call and come and give lectures and mm -hmm. spend time was a sign of respect. Mm -hmm. Mutual respect. Mutual yeah. respect. Yeah. Dan Wyden, David Kennedy, was one of them. Okay. So they flew to New York, and I rented the art director's club and to have better space and brought my staff, and they gave a lecture to, mm -hmm. to the people. The second person was Jay Shiat of Shiat Day. Okay. This is at the creme de la creme, at yeah. the top, right? Uh, willing to come to give uh, time to me and to talk to my staff and so forth. So, <clears throat> so Wyden already had Nike. Oh yeah, and yeah. Shiat yeah. already had Apple. Yeah. Wow, and they came to talk at Bloomingdale's. Yeah. yeah. Okay, that's great. Yeah. So I'm just trying to get some respect here mm -hmm. for my. Maybe I never said this openly, but just for myself, you yeah. know. Uh, here's a good story. Ad Week does a a, a special promotion or exhibition of creative directors of New York. Mm -hmm. And um, I was selected as one of the people to be photographed for a portrait. 
And then later there's a show at some place, I know, I don't know, Art Directors Club or something like that, yeah. and all the portraits are hanging. There was an opening event. And, of course, uh, I was the only non-agency person mm-hmm. in, in the show. Mm-hmm. And I was wa- going up to look at, see where my picture was, and I heard this girl say, why is he here? Oh, Why is he here? Right. From a department store? Yeah. Now, let me take you back. My parents come from China. They are not college educated, but many of their peers are. The husbands use their GI money to go to college and so forth, and so some of them did have college educations. They're all in their 20s, mid-20s, I guess, you know, in America. They are at a, a event, a party, a social event where all the young couples are there and enjoying themselves. And one of the women said to my mother as she entered the door with my father, why are you here? Your husband doesn't have a college education. And that burns a hole in me today. That, that still follows me around. Yeah, definitely. That sort of judgmental, like, why is he here? Yeah. Okay, so you were able to parlay that talk, I guess, into a deeper uh, relationship. Uh, what happened? I, I I met Dan the first time at the San Francisco Art Directors Club judging, mm-hmm. and the San Francisco Art Directors Club wanted to bring more prestige and more more national viewpoint to their judging. So they invited people from outside of San Francisco to be judges. Okay, once again. I'm the only non-agency person mm-hmm. there. Right. At the table, I knew Tom McGilligan, one of the co-founders of Fallon McGilligan, which was one of the hot um, agencies. This is the time where Madison Avenue is being challenged by regional agencies. Shiat Day in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon with Wyden and Kennedy, Fallon McGilligan in Minneapolis. Okay. And Tom, um, Tom and I knew each other um, because I had given... Fallon and the McGilligan, a, a, a project to do, which won quite a few awards. So I see Tom. I go directly to him, sit down, and the guy sitting next to him was Dan Wyden, and that's how we met. And I think from there, then I uh, invited him to come to speak at, at Bloomingdale's. And then how did that parlay into a job? Well, um, years later, I would send him stuff. Yeah. To be to be fair, I would send him the new shopping bag or the new ad campaign or something just to say just to stay in touch with him. Yes, yeah. I admired what they were doing so much, and um, he um, I invited him to speak. Uh, he's very shy. I invited him to speak at a major retail conference in Chicago, and I didn't. I kind of lied about the size of it. I said like maybe the forty people uh-huh. is. I think it was three hundred or four hundred people. Right. Right. So we go in for rehearsal. I take him in, and I open the door to the auditorium, and he goes, holy shit, this is the place, you know? Yeah. I said, oh. He says, well, let's, I'm, let's talk. Let's, let's go down and have lunch. Let's talk. So I thought, you know, we're going to rehearse. Yeah. And he says to me, David and I, David Kennedy, and I've been thinking, uh, we'd love to have you join us out at Wyden in Portland, Oregon. And once again, in my mind, I'm thinking of that conversation I had with Marvin Traub at Bloomingdale's, but I've never worked in an agency before. Yeah. I've never, and yet someone was extending their hand out to right. me. Well, it took years. Okay. I from never, that, from, from that invitation. From that invitation, we stayed in touch, stayed in touch, stayed in touch. 
I just couldn't leave New York. Come on. I mean, I didn't come from Columbus, you know, to go to Portland, Oregon. Yeah. You know? So I'm one of those hardcore New Yorkers because I'm not from New York. Yeah, you know? right. So, I mean, it took me years to go to the Hamptons because I go, why would I want to leave Manhattan? You know, yeah. what's out there? Yep. Yeah. So, um, so did it take a couple of visits to Portland? Great story. So suddenly, one day, something clicked, and I said, it's time. Okay. I'm going I'm to change my life completely. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know what a brief was back then, but I wrote myself what essentially was a brief, mm-hmm. a piece of paper, and it, I wrote it to myself, and it said, go where you can do or make the best creative work of your life. And the trick there, as a New Yorker, do not put an asterisk on that mm-hmm. statement. The asterisk usually for New Yorkers is, and it has to have theater, and it has to have a beach, and yeah. it has to have this, and, and a nightlife, and, you know. Right. I never went to the theater. Why do New Yorker people always say it's got to have, you know, yeah. so. And uh, so, no, just take those words verbatim. Mm-hmm. Go wherever you can go to make the best work of your life. Yeah. Not it had to be major city or whatever, whatever. Right. And so I, I, I looked and looked and looked and looked and struggled trying to make up my mind because I was just, I just love New York. I mm-hmm. just still do. But, and I just sunk a ton of money in, in, a, in a redo, complete redo of an apartment on, on, on Riverside in 86. And I go, and of course my rationale was, well, I'm going to be here forever. This will yeah. finally pay off. And, mm-hmm. you know, and it's two years later that I, I'm, I'm making this move. And I'm down now to, I'm now, down to like the options, and uh, I had a, a a loft that I was using in Tribeca that I used as a gallery mm-hmm. and a studio for my outside work. So all my time at Bloomingdale's, I always had what then was called J Design, but mm-hmm. it's basically Studio J yeah. doing outside work, books, um, um, restaurants, mm-hmm. everything. Now you and, and this is this is typical me following me around. I already have this highly coveted job where I can practically do anything, yeah. but, and, but still not enough. Right. It's still not enough. You need a little skunk work project there. Always, always. Wow, so the, the Studio J started even back in oh, yeah. the Bloomingdale days. Oh, yeah. Um, the, one, of my, design. one of my favorite projects was a restaurant called Chin Chin's at 249 East, 40, 246 East 49th Street. Uh-huh. And the owner said, I want you to design this restaurant so it'll last me for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that was the goal. Yeah. And I remember at lunchtime at Bloomingdale's running down with all the photographs that I had framed, hanging them for opening day <laughs> at, at the restaurant. <laughs> um, but no, I did a lot of stuff outside okay. uh, at that time. Whatever time could have, you know, and as long as it wasn't a conflict, yeah, of course, yeah. you know. Right. Um, and so... Uh, so do your best work anywhere in the, in world. the world. Yeah. <laughs> Business-based decisions are challenging to deal with. It's because there's no mathematical right or wrong answer. Sure, some would argue, just compare the dollars. But is it really that simple? I mean, what's the price of personal satisfaction? What's the price of being proud of the work you're putting out into the world? What's the cost of being surrounded by people you're inspired by versus people who bring you down? What's the price of freedom? How do you properly gauge all of these things? The thing is, the answer is different for everyone. There is no right or wrong answer. The key here is asking yourself, what is your motivation and drive? 
which is why John did something genius here. He wrote himself a brief. He unknowingly treated himself like a client and said, John, this is what I want you to do. Go where you can do the best creative work of your life. This was so smart because just as much as you should have a core foundation to ground you, you should have a guiding principle to move you forward. And be real with yourself. No asterisks, no buts, no BS. Keep your brief simple, clear, and actionable. Now, when you look back at John's career thus far and what's about to come, you'll notice that using this personal brief idea, whether consciously or not, has put him into positions where he didn't settle for less. And not in the monetary sense, but nothing less for him and his potential. He may jump into a new brand, he may jump into a new field, but he's not going to miss the opportunity to do something amazing just because it might be out of his comfort zone. In fact, that actually seems to be the positive indicator for John. It's that brief. It works to keep him on that clear path. Everything else, the money, the people, the country, the skill set, those just become the technicalities. So I get an offer from someone that I really admire, Ralph Lauren. Buffy Baratella, who was his right hand and head of communications, came down to the loft and we sat down and I ordered some Chinese food and we sat there and talked. And over the course of the next 48 hours, things, you know, I said, I don't, you know, we talked about it. And so that was so comfortable. Mm -hmm. It's in my, it's in my, yeah. you know, zone. I know all the people. New York. It, it's New York. It's someone that I admired mm -hmm. very much. I worked with, you know, because uh, we were his largest account, you know, at Bloomingdale's. And uh, I know he was not an easy person, but I really, really admired how he stuck to his guns. Yeah. He never changed for anyone. Mm -hmm. He stuck to his vision. I really admired that about him, even now, yep. you know. And I was thinking that this is, this is just an ex but it was just an extension of Bloomingdale's in many ways. Yeah, you know? it was a it was a one foot pivot. Yeah, yeah, a few blocks, and that's yeah. about it. <laughs> so wow, I can't believe what what really prompted you to turn that down, like just well, because of that. Well, recently in the last year, of course, I'm, you see the 50th anniversary of yeah. Ralph Lauren. It's on every book and every mm -hmm. cover, and you think about wow, you look at those pictures and you say you think to yourself. Maybe I could have been in these pictures. Maybe mm -hmm. I could have been a part of this and so yep. forth. But I needed radical change. Okay. I needed to take the chips and put them on something else, bet bigger, and something a little more unknown, you know? Crazy. What a move. And I've, I've had a series of these, you know, uh -huh. leaving the magazines to go to Bloomingdale's. It was a perfect... Once again, I start the interview. Oh, I'm so sorry, but you know I don't have any experience mm -hmm. in, your, in your field. <laughs> and, and this continues yeah. to follow me, right, you know. Right. Now it's a regular thing that I do. You yeah. know, I start, I look for those interviews. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't have any experience in what you do. You right, know? right. Um, so um, I talked to Dan, mm -hmm. and and Dan comes back and he, for advice and says, "Well, we think it's time for you to come out here." <laughs> Wait, you asked him for advice on Ralph, it, on on just life, life, life yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, and. Uh, <laughs> so, so the invitation I, was still open. For so Portland. I, I took it. Uh huh. So here's the point: I've never been to Portland, Oregon. Oh my god! <laughs> I've never been to the you agency took it without going to Portland no. to visit. Yeah, because of the brief. 
Yeah. The go to yourself. To, to yourself. Yeah. Not, it has to have a population of yeah. over a million. And because you'd go to Portland, you'd be like, "Where's the museum? I need. Where's the cafe? Like, there wasn't even a food cart back then." <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, brave. Yeah, and that's what you have to do. So my advice to people listening, young people, you've got to put the chips on something big mm-hmm. and yeah. go for it. Don't you know? make excuses. No, you'll don't. always find an excuse to get yeah. out of it, and yeah. you can always go back. Yeah, I can go back to New York today. You know, it's like what's you, the big you deal? Will. <laughs> and you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and uh, and I want you to put into reference the you know because a lot of the listeners of this know Nike's history intrinsically well. So when you made this jump, what year was it and what was going on with Nike? 1993 fall. Okay. 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 1993 fall. I arrive on Monday. Mhm. On Tuesday or Monday, Dan says, "Do you know anything about sports?" <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'm off to a flying start. <laughs> Thursday, Phil Knight calls. Okay. Shit. <laughs> you're, you're in the fryer. <laughs> Phil Knight calls Dan and says, my son tells me that we may be losing relevance on the streets of New York. Is there something you could do to help us? He said, well, my friend John just arrived from New York. Let mm-hmm. me talk to him. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of moves in between, but quickly... I put into action something in using all my New York contacts and knowledge and so forth. And I presented some thoughts to to them. It actually was a people don't know this, but there's actually a pitch by Nike, mm-hmm. external and in and it was a pitch internally at Wyden. Okay. And lo and behold, I won mm-hmm. the pitch. Oh, internally there was a pitch to Nike. Yeah. Okay. And then the, that pitch was against someone else outside. Oh, shit. Wow. Very competitive. And just for those who are listening who don't quite get this, you're pitching ideas amongst other creative directors at Widen. The right? most yeah. gifted agency <laughs> with the most famous creative directors. Right. So you're competing. on Nike. Yeah. You're competing with your teammates yes. on this. Yeah. And there's an outside agency also pitching for That's right. New York City. Yes. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's Damn. Right. Okay. <laughs> I don't even told I don't think I even told you that. You know? <laughs> no, yeah. So um this was the birth of what we call the city attack, mm-hmm. which is the NYC campaign, which I wanted to go deep into the culture, earn the respect of the influencers and the people on the streets and on the playground courts. I want it. This was about basketball because this is what New York is famous. It's the Mecca. Yeah. It's the, it's the temple, you mm-hmm. know? And, um, so I created what is the NYC basketball campaign, yeah. which was only shown in New York. My creative changed from borough to borough. The billboards would change mm-hmm. according to what courts, the TV that I ev- eventually did was only run in New York city. Wow. Only in New York city. I didn't know that. I didn't even and know that. The, and, and, and then, um, so this was your first <laughs> first job at Wyden. Yeah, four days later. And I, I have to say, it couldn't have been more better timed that Phil said we have a problem in New York. Yes. Wow. Yes. Um, Timing is everything, isn't it? Yeah, but <laughs> you have to put yourself in that place. You have to work your ass off so that you're in that place so that timing comes to you. Yeah. You just can't sit at home on the sofa and expect someone <laughs> to knock on your door. Right. Right. Because more than likely there'll be Jehovah Witness people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So 
the first thing I did is I went back to New York, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I called uh, my friend Young Kim, and I said, I can't go this weekend, but I'm going to send some people out. I want to hit the streets, and I want to get interviews, and I want people with, from the culture. I want people from the game. I want people from the streets. Mm-hmm. And in that weekend, I'm introduced to Bobito Garcia. Mm-hmm and the tape that we made in his apartment. This is way before sneakerology and all of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And uh, then I ended up making a t- and and I showed in part of my presentation Bobito's comments about sneakers and about, you know, looking for shoes and about the relationship to the game and, mm-hmm. and so forth. And so that, that presentation that included that video, and I did a, a bunch of work, led to immediately... Uh, the beginnings of this campaign. Wait, that was just to get the pitch. You had Bobito in the pitch? Yes. So you called Young Kim. You interviewed Bobito Garcia, did all the research, not even to get the job, like not even to do the actual work. This is just to hopefully do the work. That's right. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And they must have been floored by like yeah. the depth of the storytelling. Yeah. And the, and, the, and the marketing director, famous guy, Scott, kicked me under the table. As I'm going up to present at Nike, at Nike, yeah, at Nike, before I go to present, and he said, "Remind them he's a baller. Remind them he plays ball, mm-hmm. which means he's not just a sneaker guy. Yeah, he's not just a collector. Mm-hmm. He's not just a DJ. He is a yes, he is a hip hop historian. Yes, and so forth. But he also plays ball, mm-hmm. and that adds to the credibility to the work that I'm doing. Yeah, all right. So." Off we go, and I make t- I make TV and, and and so forth, and it's that 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 work that if you go back with the locked off camera, mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, you know, it's the, it was well, we're, like for those who don't know now, what we're talking about is the classic stacked NYC logo with a swoosh running through it. That's right. Yeah, and so you your team at Wyden did that. I did all that. <laughs> <laughs> so the first weekend, so this is Thursday, and I go and I and I have to stay in town, so. I said, um, Phil Knight just called, and we have a, a presentation next week. Mm-hmm. I want all out this weekend. We're going to go for it this weekend. Mm-hmm. I get a lecture. John, you're new here. There is a certain quality of life that we really um, cherish here. <laughs> right. And it went on for about 10, 15 minutes. And I nodded respectfully. I am new to the agency. I'm new to Portland, Oregon. I get on the phone, call all my New York friends. I don't get permission from account service. I don't get permission on budgets. Mm-hmm. Get on the plane. Get out here. We're going to go to work. So you called your New York friends. And flew them out to Portland. You said, fine, Portland, guys. You go home at 5, five o'clock on Friday. Wow. Now, <laughs> I am sure at that moment there were Portland people that would have stayed with me, mm-hmm. but I didn't know anyone. Yeah, and you didn't have time to I didn't have time to mess out. around. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I flew, you know. Got to get the shit done, right? Let's go. <laughs> yell at me later. Yeah. So what? After we get the job, yell yeah. at me. <laughs> so I flew um, uh, some people out from, from New York, mm-hmm. and we worked through the weekend, and then as the videotapes and the interviews and everything start coming in, we start piecing things together. I had ideas for TV. I started using things, and then I sent photographer out, who was a New Yorker, to just shoot parts of New York. I said, I want you to go down Lower East Side. I want you to go to Brooklyn. I want you to go all these places and shoot me these pictures. Send them back to me right away. Mm-hmm. And I started piecing together an idea of this campaign. So the first work I did was actually, I went to New York 
and I made that I made an NYC with a swoosh, and I made it into giant um, press type, mm-hmm. really big. Explain press type. Uh, it was like letters that were made uh, on wax paper that you could press it on a piece yeah. of paper and like letter set, like letter set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this was big, mm-hmm. you know. And I went to different <clears throat> locations uh, around the city and made this big NYC swoosh. Mm-hmm on top of whatever was on the walls and so forth in the city. I let it sit for about a month or three weeks. Then I send the photographer out. I go, find these things, because this is where I put, put them up. <laughs> and he photographs them. Uh-huh. And they have, and now they've the been a little worn. The city had just shit yeah. on them and yeah. everything. Yeah. yeah. He photographs them, and those were my first ads. Just yeah. scenes of New York with NYC. Yep. That's it. Yep. No type, nothing. Just that. Did those end up being the commercials? And then that inspired, the commercials were a part of it. Uh-huh. And so there were, some of the commercials were be the NYCs in the, the that logos in the, in from the very first moment the TV starts, mm-hmm. right? So it may be on a telephone pole. Yeah. But, and the telephone pole is on the far left, but my scene is something that's happening on the right. Just the city going on. The city, on. yeah. Yeah, the city's going on. And then the client would say, "But where's the logo? Because it didn't end. <laughs> it didn't end with the with a logo." I said, "It's been up for thirty seconds. Yeah, it's there on the bottom right corner. Yeah. Thirty seconds. The whole behind the pigeon shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's all logo." And wow. The, yeah. And yeah, and there was these locked sh- shots yeah. with like nothing happening. Right. What what life happening? Yeah, in front. life. Yeah. And not of basketball or, yeah. or anything, you know. Wow. Um, and. Um, and then the voice. And then the voice of the real people that I interviewed, uh-huh. that I interviewed for the insights. You used those as recordings. The, yeah. So Bob Beetle, Beetle was like one That's of why them, yeah. he was in it. And know? it was just the most raw, unfiltered, unedited right. audio. The real deal. Yeah. No agency, you know, veneer, no yeah. art director veneer, just the real deal. Are, do you know if these are on YouTube? They probably are. Yeah. You guys, whoever's listening, you guys should look at these because they are... What they did to me, you said this was 94. Yeah. Okay, 94. I am now in NYU, second year in my shithole studio apartment, watching this commercial and just fucking floored by it. You know, just that, like, how real it was. Kids in New York emulate street legends, and that doesn't happen in L.A. So if you come from L.A. to New York and you're just shooting your, you know, your regular fundamental... You know, 10-foot jump shots, Joe you know. Regular. Yeah, Joe Regular. <laughs> Nobody's going to emulate you. Nobody's going to try to be like you. You want people to try to be like you. You want to be a force. You want to have recognition and, and you know, be looked at as like, damn, he just changed the game. Right. He took the game to another Completely. level. How was it pitching this to some Portland guys? They must have been like, no way. We can't see the shoe. We can't see the logo. There's no one playing basketball. So my, <laughs> I asked Dan, I said, who, who can work with me on this, on the writing side? He said, well, my brother's free, Ken Wyden. He's free. Why don't you work with Ken on this? So I bring back all the tapes and everything, and I, and I said, this is what I've got. This is my idea. And he just looked at me in the, in the recording st- in the studio, and he goes, I can't write any better than this. <laughs> Right? Are you crazy? What are you asking me to do? <laughs> Just use it. <laughs> That's exactly what he said. Wow. But what about like to Nike guys? Did they love it at first sight? Yeah. Oh, they okay. Did. They got it right yeah, away. Yeah. That's good. Now, in this pitch, it wasn't treated as the glamour thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Once again, why am I here? 
I get all the crappy jobs, you know, mm -hmm. I'm the new kid or whatever, yeah. they, you know. So this thing is given to, to, to us and it doesn't report to the marketing and advertising board. There was a board of, of, of five people, four people. At Nike. At Nike. Okay. Mark Parker was on that board. Okay. They gave it to a guy over here on the side who was the former head of in-store graphics or in-store signage mm -hmm. at Nike. Like a retail, got retail visual merchandising type. Bob guy. Wood. Yeah. Okay. So the project was off on the side, uh -huh. so I could work fast. Oh. I didn't have to go for Better. Absolutely better. <laughs> I didn't show it to Dan. Uh -huh. I didn't show it. I just went. We just went. And we were cut, making commercials every weekend. Wow. And they would, Bob would say, but I only have this amount of money. Said, no problem. Mm -hmm. Here's how you do it. And so coming from my background, you know, in department stores and so on, I, I'm never afraid of the money part. Yeah. When I see no money, now the ingenuity, now the creativity uh -huh. just soars because yeah. now you got, dude, you know, now, you know, because the, the joke in agencies is that when you don't have an idea, you just hire a famous director or something, you know. <laughs> uh -huh. Um, but no bureaucracy too. No that bureaucracy. Would, I went yeah. straight. Uh, it right. didn't report to the board. Right. You know, like it could almost go from your thought to like the subways. We were like literally in five days. We were on the streets. That's making amazing. stuff. Yeah. Literally. Yep. And we just present ideas, and Bob said, "Yeah, let's go it," and I go. And oh, then Dan was... would say, "What are you doing again?" I said, "I'll show you next week." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just retail stuff. Yeah. Don't worry about Don't it. Don't worry about <laughs> it. You know. So when his thought is little. Yeah. You know. But then, was it quickly seen at how it was re like how it was resonating with New York? It must have bubbled up fast, F huge. This is going viral before social media. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we did many, many campaigns, constantly changing it up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one campaign was the vernacular of basketball in New York. Mm -hmm. We collected all of these words from different ball players, you know, and one of them was Jokic to to mm -hmm. dunk the ball. Yeah. And the word yoke, you know. So the first thing I did was I bought a building at 42nd and 6th or 7th. And when you come out of the subway, there's a six-story billboard. It said yoke on it. And underneath it, as background, I took the subway map and printed that as the background and put this broken type, uh -huh. like graffiti, you know, broken type that says yoke on it. And the New York Times writes an article on it. And they say, isn't it great that the MTA is making big maps in, in the city <laughs> to help the tourism when they come and they come out at Times Square? Now there's a big map. On, you know, but that the, was your graphic. As my graphic, the background <laughs> to the bird yoke. You know? Now, dudes that play ball all get, get it, it, right? Yeah, yeah. So Adweek comes out with their first write-up, and they obviously didn't get it. Mm -hmm. And they obviously it said that this work is inauthentic, you know, and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get a call from the client. I'm nervous, you know. Yeah, yes. Yeah. He says, "Congratulations, they didn't get it." Wow, that's awesome. Because if they got, if Adweek gets it, that means you're done. You're done. Like, yeah. Well, it means that you missed the consumer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, they didn't get it. They didn't get it. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So amazing. And meanwhile, I'm here as a student. I'm stealing these ads. I'm literally taking my box cutter, going down into the subways at like 3 a.m., and I'm slicing the ads out of the subway, slicing them out of the, um, you know, when you enter the subway, the big kiosk. Like, I like 
grappled around that thing and sliced them out so that I could hang them in my bedroom. So <laughs> in the New York Times, there's an article on um, certain ballet ads, and they said these are highly coveted, and they're being stolen. They're one of the most stolen images and posters in, in the subway. The only one that is more stolen, number one, are the Nike ones, the NYC ones. <laughs> yeah. So, I love them. They're amazing. There was another series that you did where it was like quotes done beautifully uh, typographically. Over basketball. But it was like these graffiti ghost characters. Oh, that's another one. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, there were so many campaigns. Yeah, they like changed. So constantly and changing. You, you kind of felt like I have to collect them all. So finally, so people in advertising are always going, oh, do I have to show product? You know, and mm-hmm. somehow there's some, some weird thing that if you don't show product, it's, it's cooler or something like that. Yeah. That's, and that's kind of a, the, the, the art school mentality mm-hmm. or something, you know. So I go for So I'm doing all this stuff with no basketball, just words and pictures and images and so forth. And so now it's time to put some product out there. You know? yeah. So we bought these billboards all over the city. And I had a graffiti artist paint the Air Darwins in graffiti style, uh-huh. a giant shoe in yeah. graph style, and it and his, he did the type, and it just said Air Darwin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was a beautiful billboard. Yeah, you know, just pure shoe, right? Pure shoe. Yeah. You oh know? man, those were the days. I mean, most kids probably think the NYC logo is like an Air Force One model because that's what they ended up doing. With they ended up putting it on product, right? It just came out. You commented, yeah, on yeah. That. You it commented. was the Dover Street one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just thought, I mean, I don't know who you talk about, like the cross sections of culture and Ray Kawakubo and Come de Garcon and Dover Street and you and Nike NYC on this one shoe. I just feel like no one really knows the the intersections that happened. So you, I noticed it, and and you you put a little call out on that thing with my name on it. Yeah, and I'm sure most people don't know what what's yeah. Jeff referring to. Yeah, here. I, I did the post, and I wrote I wrote a caption, and I wrote CC John J. Yeah. But like people are like, what? What does he have to do with this? <laughs> he shops at Dover Street. <laughs> awesome. This, my friends, is the stuff of sneaker lore. This is the big bang moment of sneaker culture as we know it today. Not told through a documentary reporter, told straight from the horse's mouth. Legendary stuff. It's an amazing inside look into groundbreaking projects for a groundbreaking brand. Detailed stories of how a lot of this work comes to light are more often than not just kept in the dark. But having the opportunity to hear them now from John only further shows the impact that he's made on the culture throughout his career. It should be clear, John is an advertising and creative titan. It showed through his work at Bloomingdale's. It was apparent to Dan Wyden himself and even Phil Knight. But when it comes down to diving into the core essence of a brand, his gears start running at full steam, and they go from plain old genius to something on a whole other level. Just look at John's first project at Widen and Kennedy. He was the new kid on the block, literally, the new city slicker in town. A modest request from Nike head Phil Knight happens in his first week. And even with the constraints put into the project, like a small budget, and only enough money for scrappy posters and a few interviews, he still won the work for the agency, and at the same time made it so authentically New York that people like me were risking our lives to collect them. Or maybe that was just me. His creative mind took him a notch above others. 
but it was also this no-bullshit work ethic that really set him apart from the rest. When people would tell him no or slow down, he didn't take that as instruction. He took it as suggestion. Like, noted that you feel that way, I'm going to still do it my way. Sometimes asking for forgiveness is better than asking for permission. Yeah, it's one of the things is that um, uh, I get a kick, kick out of. Uh, there's a coffee shop across the street from my studio in Portland mm-hmm. called Deadstock. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the famous... Sneaker Deadstock, yeah. Yeah, and he's a former Nike guy. Uh-huh. The famous story is he worked as a janitor at Nike. He loved Nike so much he would take any job. He worked. He's African-American. He uh-huh. worked. But who was he janitor for? Sandy Bodecker and all of these people. And yeah. they treated him well and treated him with respect so he gets the guts. They, they give him advice. You need to go out on your own. What do you love? You know, he says, uh, he says I want to be an entrepreneur. And says, okay, go, you know. So he opens up this coffee shop. And this was just a few months ago. So Phil Knight, I have Phil Knight over at the studio as, mm-hmm. a, as a surprise guest for Dan Wyden lunch. And Dan comes every month for lunch. And I was having him photographed in the studio and uh, knock on the door and interrupting the shoot. And I said, Dan, someone else is here. Mm-hmm. And he says he wants to shoot you too. And then you hear this voice behind me. It's Phil. He says, yeah, and I didn't bring a damn camera. I brought a rifle. <laughs> <laughs> Open the door. Phil walks in and Dan faints. He like falls out of the chair. Wow. So during the lunch, I said, Phil, I, I know you're busy. Thank you so much for coming today. I have to tell you this story about this guy who was a former janitor at Nike who then got to doing a few colorways and then he started working on, but now he has this coffee shop called Deadstock. Mm-hmm. I said, they would all faint if you walked in there. Mm-hmm. So I brought him over. Wow. And he walked in, you know. They went crazy? Yeah. That's so awesome. Yeah. You got to come full circle like that, right? Yeah. And and he loved it. He loved the fact that, you know, he knew all these people and, you know, and, and he had, you know, when I first got to the coffee shop, I'd ask, where'd you get that old school poster and everything? Oh, I stole it out of the trash, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, how was it like, and you said you did uh, 21 years, was it, at, at Wyden? Right. Yeah. Six in Japan when I opened, I opened the, the, the Wyden County Tokyo and, um, um, I promised Dan I would interview key people in the company to see who might be the first creative director and first management to come. And after the second day, I said, we're off to a start. I got him. Mm-hmm. I got this person. He goes, wow, that was fast. Who? I said, me. <laughs> he says, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm listening to the pitch. This is a golden opportunity to take creativity to a new place, to take widen to new places. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the graphic design culture of, of Japan and, and everything, and I already knew about what was happening in the streets and everything. I said, I'm going to take this job. Mm-hmm. And then even Nike didn't believe it. He says, what? You're going to go over like six months, right? You know, no, I'm moving there. Uh-huh. So wow. that's what I did. That's amazing. So, yeah, that's within the t- 21 years. Yeah. And then you had to open other offices too, right? Yeah. Uh, Shanghai. Uh, which was the first office that we opened with no um, no business. And this was 2006, or 2000, yeah, 2006, and the Beijing Olympics were coming. Mm-hmm. And I said to Dan, we don't need an invitation. No one needs to tell us that this is going to be a phenomenon in the history yeah. of the world. Right. But this, it's written. This is, it's, we know what's, yeah. what's out there, what's coming. So either we're on that train early or we're going to miss that train. Mm-hmm. So are we going to have to find an account or a business to encourage us to move there? 
what kind of encouragement do we need other than history? Yeah. Let's make history. Let's be a part of this history. Mm -hmm. Let's ride on this train, you know? He says, you're right. So I opened it in my friend's apartment. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's the first <clears throat> office, I think, that we opened with no business. Mm. Because I think the Portland office did open, you know, with Dan and Dave... With some with some business, yeah, yeah. So this is literally an office opening with no business right. at all. And um, so I, I just told the story to, to Phil, in fact, and he cracked up. So it's we don't have Nike, mm -hmm. and um, we have to pitch for it. Mm -hmm. We have to pitch for it. So we're there. The big day is here. All the big shots from Nike from from Beaverton are there. Davide Grasso is there, heading up his whole team. And I bring Dan out for the pitch, the mm -hmm. day of the pitch. And I said to Dan, I said, uh, everyone, this is a very exciting day for all of us uh, at Wyden and Kennedy. Uh, I'd like Dan to just kick off, uh, make some remarks before we get into the creative work. Dan, over to you. And Dan says, why the fuck are we having to pitch for this account? <laughs> Thank you, Dan, for, Thank your, you. <laughs> for your charm. We are off to a flying start. Let's go to the creative. Thank you. <laughs> oh my god and i see david writing down in his notebook why the fuck <laughs> <laughs> oh man but um, thank god we won yeah you know we won and uh and uh and and david is very proud that of all the pitch work that we showed because typically you showed you know many campaign ideas and mm -hmm. so forth we actually made all that work uh, afterwards uh-huh not just the winning campaign but we actually subsequently over two years made all that work oh too. wow and then other regions too, right? Uh, New Delhi. Right. Uh, now, I wasn't as active. I was at the starting point and mm -hmm. interviewing people and, and selecting. And I, and I drove them crazy because I, I didn't want to be in a corporate complex. And India at that time was very conscious of, of, of its image to the world, and still is, of course. And they wanted, um, they wanted um, to build a, a very uh, um, prestigious high skyscraper fancy buildings and so forth and and most of the western agencies were moving into those places and, yeah yeah and i refused to be in there mm. and so um the real estate people would sit with me and bring out tons of notebooks and go well this agency just moved here and this agency moved there and i just pushed all those notebooks aside and said therefore i ain't going there mm -hmm. i'm not going there yeah so now they're like, we're, we're, we're confused, Mr. J. We don't know what you're looking for. And I said, let's just drive around. You know, mm -hmm. can we drive around? <laughs> so we go into... You, well, you opened China in an apartment. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yeah. that, get, that goes to yeah. show, yeah. <laughs> so we, 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 uh, we, we, it was an apartment of a friend of mine that had worked with me at Bloomingdale's. His name is Richard Su. We, and, and it looked beautiful. And it, you know, typical him. He took us a, a, a minimal space, and it was really beautiful. And we put in desks, and everything. I didn't realize it had no heat. <laughs> so <laughs> the white people, are, John, there is no heat in this damn place, you know. And they're space all wearing, heaters, they're yeah. all wearing like heavy coats, right. you know. So we're in Delhi, and I and and, and I'm rejecting <laughs> every every place. Uh -huh. And the final blow was when they said, "But this agency, a major Western agency, just moved in here, and, and let me just show you the." The final, the the reason why everyone is going to come to this building, and they show they flipped open the double page spread in the presentation. This place has a food court. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's get in the car. Let's go look at some stuff. <laughs> right, you right, know. Right. <laughs> so we start driving around, 
and we went into some strip malls, what's equivalent to a strip mall, and I saw this concrete flat roof building with big glass in the front that was empty. Mm-hmm. I go, what is that? I like that. Mm-hmm. He goes, oh, that's a former BMW dealership. That's what I like. Mm-hmm. I like something. But you weren't allowed to go into interesting places. The The government forbid you from going into. So uh, the people that we eventually hired wanted to be in a farmhouse. They wanted to be in an old school. Yeah. They wanted to take over an old store. But we were not allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. So we were, for the first few years, we were constantly moving around because we were getting kicked out of the, the places <laughs> that we're in. So I don't even know where they are now. Yeah, so, yeah. So. How was it... Um Working remotely, like even when you first said, I'm, go- I'm moving to Japan, mm-hmm. was there a concern from the Portland side that like, well, how are you going to handle stuff going on here? You mean in Japan? Yeah, like how are you going to be able to do Portland, Japan, and then China? Like, No, once I moved to Japan, I was in charge of Japan. Okay, so you relinquished what yeah, was going on. Okay, that's right, right. Was there concern about you leaving Portland? No, I don't... I don't know. You have to ask them. I, <laughs> I, I just know. Um, again, I was always the outlier. Uh-huh. I was always the outlier. I would always take the projects that no one else wanted. Oh, okay. The fact was, no one wanted to work on Nike Asia, quite right. frankly, right. inside the and agency. For sure, no one wanted to move to Japan. Yeah. Oh, are you kidding? No. Right. No. Um, no. Oh. It, it's You have to remember back, back then. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's hard to imagine now because you... You tell a kid right now, do you want to move to Tokyo? And everyone's on the plane. Yeah. But back then, maybe it's like much more hesitant. We had a a, a, a very high-level person who was uh, given an offer of a, just a free trip mm-hmm. to Tokyo. Mm-hmm. And he returned the tickets. He said, like, I don't want to go. Yeah. yeah. Why would I want to go there? <laughs> Only the most inspiring place on earth. <laughs> right. Not to everyone. Yeah. Did you think, um, was there any point in your career there that you thought, this is where I'm going to hang my hat. Like, you mean forever? Yeah. There are, the, there are those times. Because, I mean, it's just the people that you were with, the reputation, where Nike was going, this is top dog stuff. Yeah. There's no, there's, you could argue that there's no higher point. Well, I come back to Portland. Mm-hmm. Now, when I'm in Japan, that's when my friendship with Mark Parker really was cemented because he was coming to Japan so much. Mm-hmm. He would come hang out at my office, yeah, and he'd get in trouble because right. he wouldn't go to the Nike office, and he had to explain that I'm here on personal time. This is my <laughs> my recharging, my you know, for uh-huh. creativity uh-huh. and so forth and everything. And uh, then suddenly, I had the great pleasure. We would start talking, and we would challenge each other. So where do we have to go for inspiration? Mm-hmm. And and so one year, I said, let's go to Art Basel. Mm-hmm. And then next year, he said, let's go to Salone in mm-hmm. Milan and mm-hmm. so forth. And then there was this famous trip where we traveled through all the cities and we, we met with uh, Fraser Cook and mm-hmm. all of these people. Yeah. And, you know, all the OGs uh-huh, know, were, uh-huh. were, were met and hired from that trip. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. So he would come and do these inspiration trips with you. Yeah. And he would meet with everyone else. I yeah, mean, yeah. He was such a, a, a figure there. I remember... We were going um, over to the Metacom anniversary show, and they had all the influencers do a Metacom, mm-hmm. a bare brick, you know. Mm-hmm. And Mark did one for, you know, of course, you know, of all the artists in the show, and he he has a bare brick in the show. Yeah. And so we go early uh, to the show, and he and uh, there's a line of people waiting to meet him, mm-hmm. artists, and each one had made a special gift, a piece of art, and they, and all waiting for him to come to give him. 
this piece of art. It was, it was extraordinary. Yeah, he's real patron to the arts. Isn't oh yeah, he? extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, extraordinary supporter. And and I uh, had the great uh, the the great uh, you know time of going to some of the artists that he's the patron of and mm -hmm. so forth and see the work in progress and. Uh, extraordinary supporter of the arts, yeah. uh, and, and and not the obvious people. That's the other thing that's so so interesting about him. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and so we would travel around the world, you know. And this is while I'm at Wyden, you yeah. know. And so uh, one day, and I don't talk about them, you know, um, in in the agency or anything. Mm -hmm. And um, one day there was a post by Rebecca Van Dyke, who at that time was the the global Nike account director, mm -hmm. and it said. Has anyone been wondering where John Jay is today? And she, then she posts a picture. Okay. And it's a bunch of us standing in front of the Nike jet with Kanye. Mm -hmm. And that's that famous trip where he asked for a ride to New York. And during that trip, he flips out his notebooks. Now, he had no idea he was going to be with us. And all these drawings of shoes. We're in his notebooks. Wait, how did this how did this trip even transpire? How did you, Kanye, and Mark Parker end up on a jet? There's a famous picture of the, all of us sitting there. With, we're where, where, where were you going from and to? From Basel to New York. Miami? Yeah. Okay. So and you just, there was, it wasn't planned that he was no. going to be meeting with you. So um, Dr. Romanelli. Okay. Dr. Romanelli. Right. Dr. <laughs> yep. Romanelli says, hey, we're down here. I'm showing Kanye uh, the art scene and so forth. Um you know, do you think it's possible that we could get a ride? You know, could he get a ride back to New York with you? And Mark said yes. <laughs> okay. Jamie. This is how this shit happens. It's always. And so we're on the thing, and he had no idea, and we're talking about videos and ideas, and he, we're just talking, you know, and then mm -hmm. he whips out of his backpack his notebooks with all these shoe drawings, mm -hmm. and then he starts drawing, and so that's how it started. The Yeezys. Yeah, right there. Wow. Right there. So I didn't post it, uh, the picture, but uh, some Jamie on the plane did take a picture mm -hmm. and s posted on his, and somehow Rebecca Van Dyke at the Wyden agency saw it yeah. and posted it. Did you get in trouble or something? No, no. It's just <laughs> that I would never I would never show that. Yeah, anymore. yeah, yeah. Right. And that was the beginning of their relationship. What, yeah. is, what is your impression of Kanye when you met him then? And have you met him... I had talked to him about maybe a few months ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. In What's your impression? <laughs> um, incredibly smart. Mm -hmm. Incredibly smart. And I can't separate from some of the shows I've been at his, you know, yeah. that, 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 which were extraordinary. Yeah, pieces of art. Like, Just yeah. extraordinary. Mm -hmm. uh, when he is on that stage by himself, you know, for two hours. Yeah. It's just extraordinary. I just thought he was incredibly smart, very clever, mm -hmm. um, very obviously clever about PR. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously. Yeah. Very creative. Um, that's all I can say. I don't know him that well. He called me recently to talk about something, you know, mm -hmm. um, and uh, no, he's, yeah. I, you know, I, I know there's a lot of haters out right. there. I don't obviously don't agree with a lot of stuff that he says, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it always makes me wonder, why is he saying it? Is it really something he believes in, or is it... Is he playing the, playing the audience? That's right. You yeah. think he's clever enough to do that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> oh yeah. I kind of believe that too. Yeah. 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 So I can't tell. Mm-hmm. I don't know him well enough to say he's playing me or he's right. for real. And right. that's the Machiavellian sort yeah. of thing. And the him. playing me part is for real too. Yeah. And sometimes you could argue that he has to make himself believe it to to get the wool over everyone's eyes. To make it like, Maybe that's why you have to wear like a hat. A, it's like um you know, like actors who do method acting and like they live the whole character. That's how they become such great actors. And what he showed and 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 his ideas for videos that were built on controversy, mm-hmm. built on popular culture, added with controversy. Yeah, what he talked about in some of these ideas. Right. That controversy part tells me he may be playing me right now. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely another topic to be had. <laughs> um, but going back to the question, so you're, it's at the top of the game. You're yeah. doing all this amazing stuff. Right. Did you ever sit back and think like, this is it for me. Like, I'm good. To be honest with you, maybe. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But the agency world started changing. For sure. It wasn't as interesting. Mm-hmm. And this is what happened in retail for me, the yeah, fashion industry. At Bloomingdale's, yeah. yeah. It was star- you can ju- I can see that star you uh-huh. know, beginning to lose a little bit of the luster. You mm-hmm. know? Now, I'm not saying widen, but the agency world was... And I've done so much. And throughout my career, this is what... You, I, I've definitely fought hard to earn this right, and, and so, but I am extremely lucky, and I'm surrounded by the best mentors in the world, the yeah. history of the industry. Mm-hmm. But I need more. Yeah. I need more. So knew, you knew that you needed more, but you knew that... And mind you, I have Studio J. Yeah. I'm also doing stuff, you know... Right, on the side. On yeah. the side. Yeah. But you knew that the agency world was sort of losing its luster. It was dimming. Yeah. Yeah. The one that I knew... the the Now... It's probably going to find itself and be something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's evolving. Not, yeah. It has to evolve. Yeah. But after a while, you 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 start thinking. You know, what else can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and there's so much more. I there's so much I don't know. There's so many people I haven't met, and there's yeah. so many places I still haven't gone. Mm-hmm. Now, compared to most people, I've probably done a lot. You know, but yeah, <laughs> but like five lifetimes worth, maybe <laughs> it could be. Uh, I was just thinking about something uh, that I was thinking. About writing and um, metaphor was a bridge. I was looking at some footage that just shot on my phone, and the idea of a bridge. Mm-hmm. And I'm always constantly building bridges yeah. for other people, but I'm thinking of this metaphor about a bridge to everywhere, mm-hmm. not a bridge to nowhere, but a bridge to everywhere mm-hmm. or a bridge to anywhere. Yeah. So that idea, bridge of anywhere, and of course, I want to take that trip. Mm-hmm. I want to get on that bridge, and I want to go, but I also want to bring as many. I want to turn over and look at behind me, and I want to see as many people as I can mm-hmm. to pull along with me. Right, following on that bridge. Yeah, yeah. That that's my that's my goal okay. is to, to 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 make it easier for them to go on that bridge mm. because that's what the mentors did for me. Yeah, they just said, "Don't be afraid. Let's go." And Dan was Dan Wyden was extremely helpful in that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, again. You have the f- most famous creative directors in the business at, at Wyden and Kennedy, and suddenly I come in as a as a creative director on you know working on Nike, yeah, with no experience, right? So who who had the guts there, mm-hmm. me or him? I, him I think yeah. it was him. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What a monster of an episode! And don't forget that was only episode one. We will come back next week with part two of Mr. John Jay. 
Thank you for listening. And as always, you can find out more about the show and listen to other episodes at hypebeast.com slash radio. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I personally use Anchor FM. And they have this great new feature called voice messages, which is funny because voice messages is like this old tech from when people had landlines. Anyway, Anchor's voice messages allow you to just leave me and my team a voice recording to tell us what you think of the show or who you want to see on future episodes and just ask any business questions that you might have or life questions, whatever. We're game. Also, leave a comment and rating on Apple Podcasts and tell us what you think of the show. Tell a friend about the show. DM me, Instagram me, tweet at me. This all helps a lot. You can reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple. The Business of Hype is created in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check out their work at byt.nyc. Our director is Daniel Novetta. Our audio engineer is David Rogers Berry. Our associate producers are Sydney Pacumpra and Christina Hong. This episode was recorded at John Jay's beautiful home in Ebisu, Tokyo, Japan. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hypebeast Radio.